Okay, well, uh, last Sunday we talked about the temptation of Christ, and as is just the way things go, I don't always have time to address what I want to address. You know, when you go to school, uh, you know, they, they try to develop in you some uh, idea or theory or philosophy of preaching, and you know, it's, well, you, we need to do a three-point sermon. And uh, my pastor always said, well, what if it's a four-point sermon? You know, what if the text demands that you uh, provide four points or five? What if there's ten? And so, uh, you know, because of my conviction in regard to the scriptures, the scriptures have to dictate what is taught. And uh, so I don't typically do three-point sermons or any points at all. I just teach the text and then highlight what is highlighted from the, uh, by the Holy Spirit in the text. So uh, I didn't get to all that I wanted to address uh, in all of that, and then some of the, the application for us. So I wanted to uh, get through that with you, and then we'll get into the next section in Matthew chapter 4. Is that all right? Okay. So the temptation of Christ, I, I think that it's easy for us to kind of read it, read past it, and, um, but not really consider it uh, in, in the overall scope of the scriptures and, and, and the magnitude of the event and how, how important it was. For us, and uh, it just should not be overlooked. And uh, so, the testing of Christ, of course, we know that it was a success, and it was a necessary success for everybody, not just for Jesus, but for us. And what is under, we need to understand theologically is that when Adam failed, we failed with him, according to Romans chapter five, verse twelve. We failed with him. He was representing us before God. He failed, and we fell along with him. But Jesus, there in the desert, in his initial testing, he succeeded, and every believer succeeds with him, according to Romans chapter 5. That's pretty important, as he represents us before his Father. Okay? But as, of course, we know that this uh, would not be Jesus' last testing. Luke tells us that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. That's Luke chapter 4, verse 13. How many of you guys have noticed that that's true in your own experience, that Satan left you for an opportune time? So scripture tells us that we're to resist the devil, uh, we're to put on the armor of God, we're to have faith, we're to trust the Lord. And whenever we do that, whenever we abide in Christ, we're strong. And Satan knows the front that he's coming against. So what he does, he says, because he's a coward, so he backs off and he says, okay, I'll just wait. So he waits he departs from Ben until he has an opportune time. Okay? He's waiting for some kind of weakness. And when we look at the scriptures, when we look at people in their lives, our own lives, we know that our adversary strikes at weakness when there's vulnerability. Okay? And he discovers weakness by studying his subjects, by watching from the shadows. He does it quietly. He does it undetected. I mean, imagine if he was obvious. How effective do you think he would be? I'm coming for you. Now, Peter is the only one that got that warning, didn't he? Do you remember the story? Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. Imagine if Jesus didn't continue on and say anything to him. But he says, but I have prayed for you. So Satan is, he's looking for opportunity, but he's not obvious about it. Okay? He waits until we don't suspect him, and then he strikes. And that's why in Peter, he's the one that encourages us because he knows, of course, what it's like. 
He says for us to be watchful, to be vigilant, and he says it's because our adversary, the devil, is going about and he's, he's looking for someone to destroy. He's looking for a marriage that he might wreck. He's looking to destroy parent and child relationships. He wants to destroy our purity, our sanctity, our reputation. We think, well, I don't care what people think. You should, because you represent Christ. In fact, one of the, the qualifications for an elder in the church is that he has a good reputation from those who are outside. A good reputation. Satan would like to destroy that so that he can destroy the influence that you have. I think what uh, Satan has definitely used over the last couple years is he's, he's used all that's been going on in the West to destroy unity in the church. Are the churches having a difficult time right now? It's a mess. There's tons of, of division and arguing. He wants to destroy unity in the church. Jesus said that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 10.10. 10. And if we're not armed with the truth of God's word, if we're not relying upon his strength, if we're not abiding in Christ, uh, there's just one, one reality for us. We will fall to temptation. We will. We'll be dust. And as always, it will cost you something. You cannot succumb to temptation without forfeiting something that is good, something that is virtuous. It's always at the expense of something wholesome, something lovely, something that is morally beautiful. It's never worth it. It's never a fair trade. If you succumb to temptation, you will get ripped off. You'll get ripped off. Satan, of course, knows how to make deadly things appear delightful, satisfying, and fulfilling, just as he made the fruit in the garden desirable for Eve. You see, because of his cunning, Eve saw the forbidden fruit in a different way, right? For the first time, because of his deceptive words, the fruit appeared to be good for food, to be pleasant to the eye, And it was desirable to make her wise. So he transformed the way that Eve looked at the fruit. God said that it would kill her. Satan said that it would make her like God. But when she ate it, she became more like the devil. And then she turned and she offered it to her husband. And when he ate the fruit, for whatever reason he did, I have my theories, Romans 5 tells us that they were both ruined. And the life that God had granted to them then expired this spiritual life that that granted them fellowship and communion with God. And sin ravished their souls, and we know that then it infected their offspring. And then before their eyes, the tragedy of humanity just began to unfold. You know, Adam's son, Cain, murdered his own brother, Abel, out of jealousy. You have to understand, that's the first generation, or the second generation, immediately after the fall. Shortly after that, we have the story of Lamech, He felt justified in murdering a young man because the young man had wounded him. We don't know from the Hebrew if it was emotional or physical, but he wounded him, so he he killed him. And he even boasted in the text there in Genesis chapter 4 that if Cain would be marked and protected by God, then he would seven times more. Very strange mentality. And then as the narrative goes on, the wickedness of man became so great that even God was grieved by their existence. And you have to understand that Adam lived for almost, just over 900 years, and so all of that unraveled before his eyes. Imagine what he was thinking. What have I done? Look at the mess that I've made. He must have watched in horror. So Satan, as Genesis says, being the most cunning of all of God's creatures, he knows how to take what is absolutely detestable, what should be detestable, and he makes it delightful. He makes it 
seem to be something that could be justifiable, worthwhile, something that will benefit us. He knows how to twist something, an action, a thought about a person that's not your spouse. He makes it appear innocent and harmless, but everything he touches produces death. I think that maybe we fail to understand that Satan understands our flesh. He knows exactly what our flesh wants, and of all creatures, he knows how to entice it. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how to draw us in, and man has a tendency to fail. But when we come to the temptation or the testing of Christ, we have this, this beautiful example, and really it's just the simplicity of his obedience. You know, the, the directions that were given to Adam and Eve, could they have been more simple? Adam, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall, you shall die. I mean, they had, they had one thing, essentially, and it was, it, was, it was given to them in simplicity. And of course, Satan convoluted all of that in their minds. But instead of just saying, you know, Father, we trust you, we're going to obey you, even at this time when things don't really make sense. And for Jesus, when he was there in the wilderness, you know, imagine fasting for 40 days. What kinds of things would be wrong with you upstairs? That's tough, okay? But Jesus just simply obeyed. And when you consider his, his fasting, his suffering there, um, you know, food never looks so good. And I don't think anybody ever had a better reason to eat than Jesus after 40 days. You know, if you have gone 40 days without eating, you are in the process of dying. That's just reality. Jesus was in the process of dying. And he has this opportunity to provide for himself food. And then also, you know, recognition was never deserved by anyone more than Jesus as he stood there on the pinnacle of the temple weighing his options. His father had sent him to be the object of man's praise, of man's devotion. The opportunity was before him. And with the third temptation, you know, no one wants the earth to be filled with righteousness more than the Son of God, who is actually the rightful heir to all the kingdoms of the world. It was before him, it was offered to him. You see, to secure any any one of those things independent of his father's expressed will and timing would have reaped devastating and irrevocable consequences for us. It would have been over. It would have all been done. Okay? But Jesus demonstrated that there's nothing more satisfying, there's, there's nothing more beneficial, nothing as wonderful as just simply obeying the Father's will. If you don't understand all the details surrounding a situation, there's one thing that you know. It's simple obedience to the Father. Simple obedience. Immediately after the author of Hebrews you know, lays before his audience the history of people who trusted God through difficult times and through temptation, he says this to them. He says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the idea of author and finisher is the pioneer, the the trailblazer. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider what the text is saying. He's saying that Jesus never enjoyed testing. He didn't enjoy going out into the desert He didn't enjoy all of the agony 
that was leading up to the cross. The author of Hebrews says he despised all of it. Imagine some of his suffering that you know, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 talk about. He was taken before a garrison, he was stripped naked, and he was beaten. He was mocked and ridiculed. Before that, he was abandoned by the disciples who, you know, before all of that happened, they said that, oh, we will never leave you. They were so tough. And then Jesus is forced on top of Golgotha on Calvary, the place of the skull. And I know that our, you know, because we have to keep things decent, he always has a loincloth on the cross. But the reality is he was naked. And he was nailed there and hung in front of his family, his mother, friends, the whole community. And then he suffered until he, his life expired. The author of Hebrews is saying that he despised all of that, but he was looking beyond it. He was looking past it. What a great example for us. Nobody needs to enjoy testing. Nobody needs to endure suffering and, and, and then you know, kind of looking forward to um, you know, Satan putting some stank on it. We don't do that. We, we look beyond it. Jesus, it says he looked beyond his suffering to the place at his father's right hand where, the, where Psalm 16 says there's joy everlasting and pleasures forevermore. So Jesus looked past it all to joy, a thing that could only be realized by his perfect obedience. So our champion, as the text says, stands at the finish line victorious. And what he's saying about author and finisher is that he's already run the race for us. He's already... Uh, been through the course. He's already experienced the shame, but he came out on top. And the author in, of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Jesus isn't just cheering us on as we endure testing and temptation. He says that he's actually with us. He's running with us, and he's taking us through the course that he's already run, that he's already succeeded in, and he's offering strength to those who trust him so that we can obey and experience the joy that comes with obedience. How many of you guys have ever regretted obeying Christ? I'm not saying that it was always easy, but how many of you regretted it? How many of you regretted succumbing to temptation? Guilt, the consequences, what you sacrifice. The reality for us is that temptation will come. In fact, I believe that Satan is already tempting you to ignore what has been said this morning. Because somebody in here likely, being human, you're in the midst of temptation and you're weighing the cost and the benefit. And Satan has one thing for you. It's pleasures for a moment and suffering that follows. Don't listen to him. Ask God to give you discernment to interpret and understand what's going on, especially your thoughts and your motives, your weaknesses, your vulnerabilities, so that you can see things for what they are and so that by just simple obedience, you can follow God and enjoy the benefits. So as Peter would tell us, we can't let our guard down. We have to be watchful. We have to stand firm so that we can take hold of the joy that is set before us. Amen? Be mindful. Watch out for others. Okay? Encourage one another. Let's move on to our text. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. If you're able to stand, please stand with me as I, I read the text to you. Matthew 4, verse 12 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee... And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. 
And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Well, Father, I understand by the scriptures that if Jesus had failed in temptation, that the prophecy of Isaiah could not have come to pass. No light would have dawned in the Galilee, but actually things would have gotten darker. Lord, we thank you for your victory. We thank you for your success. We thank you that it's, it's imputed to us, that by faith it becomes our own, and we get to enjoy the benefits of it. And Lord, I pray that as we continue through the scriptures, that you would teach us, you teach us how to live, Lord, and that you'd help us to understand the nature of the gospel and how it ought to be communicated. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Um, if you would, return with me to verse 12. It says that now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. To Galilee. At this point in Matthew's gospel, a lot of time has passed. That is from verse 11 to verse 12. So from Jesus' temptation until, the, until John the Baptist was put in prison, you guys, it's been about a year. That's a big gap between two verses. Uh, except when you go to the Old Testament, sometimes between verses you have 20 years or more. But here we have a whole year uh, that Matthew is silent about. The first three Gospels, actually, they say nothing about this, this year uh, or why John was arrested. Only John's Gospel addresses the events that took place in that time period. John mentions it in John chapter 1, verse 19, uh, potentially through John 3, verse 36, or all the way to chapter 4, verse 43. Um, I don't have an opinion yet exactly uh, where that, that year is terminated. Um, we might have a better idea as we go through the text. Scholars uh, disagree. Uh, we'll worry more about the content um, than the exact date. The reason that John is the one that um, discusses the details is probably because uh, for some of that time, even perhaps on and off, he was with Jesus during that year. Uh, if you remember from John's gospel, John the disciple was actually standing with John the Baptist when Jesus, after Jesus' baptism, he was walking along the banks of the Jordan. And with John the Baptist's disciple standing next to him, he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was John the disciple and it was Andrew. They were there. And it says that after John the Baptist had made that declaration about Jesus, they stopped following John the Baptist, and, they, and, and who wouldn't? They started following Jesus, okay, the Lamb of God. And um, so, yeah, they went after him. And we don't know um, all the time that John spent with Jesus during that year, but we do have a number of the events. I uh, encourage you to go back and read them. But he's not at this point... Uh, John the disciple, he's not an official disciple. Jesus hasn't actually called him to follow him. Um, but who needs an invitation if you know who's standing before you? Amen? So he's following him, but it's not until later in Matthew 4 that Jesus officially calls John. Okay. Now, the question is, Matthew doesn't say it here. He saves it for chapter 14. Why was John put in prison? That is John the Baptist. Why was he put in prison? Now, I want to save all the juicy details for when we get to Matthew 14, but I think an explanation here is due, okay? 
it was near the end of this silent year that John the Baptist rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, that is, Herod Antipas, uh, for having his sister-in-law, who was formerly the wife of his brother and the daughter of his niece. Yeah, it's a creepy family. Uh, he was her half-uncle, if I'm correct. Okay, I'll get to the genealogy uh, very clearly when we get to Matthew 14. This is from memory. Uh, but the Herod's family was really, really screwed up. And uh, it just gets worse until Rome finally goes, you know what, enough is enough with this family. And then people are banished and dealt with, uh, as this man will be banished later on, which was a good call by Caesar. Um, But we'll get to that. So the relationship here was adulterous and it was incestuous. Now John as a prophet just wasn't going to let that slide. So he actually goes to Herod Antipas, confronts him, and that, of course, embarrassed Herod, and Herodias is her name. Uh, the family name just goes to everybody. And, uh, and so for that, he is put into prison. And our text says, when Jesus heard this, he then leaves Judah or Judea in the south, and he goes up to the Galilee uh, to start ministering there. Verse 13, it says, in leaving Nazareth, So he first went from Judea to Nazareth, which is actually in the province of Judea. And then he leaves Nazareth and he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying. We'll come back to the prophecy in Isaiah in a minute. So as I said, Jesus initially went to Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's where he was raised. He wasn't born there, but he was raised there. But he didn't stay long because he wasn't received well by his own community. Okay? Now, Nazareth at this time may have been a thousand, possibly, people. Very small town, very poor city. Well, Matthew doesn't say here, but Luke records the story for us. The text says in Luke that according to Jesus' custom, which was the custom of the Jews, that on Saturday, the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. And for whatever reason, the attendant takes the scroll of Isaiah of all books of the Old Testament. Now, mind you, Jesus was familiar with his Old Testament. I don't think it mattered which scroll he grabbed. But he grabbed the scroll of Isaiah, which is amazing. Could you imagine having the scroll of Isaiah? How many of you guys have seen it uh, when it's been on tour? So they did the Dead Sea scroll tours. Did you see it? It's huge, huh? Now, he probably didn't have the whole scroll because it would probably be about this big but he had a portion of it. And so what Jesus does is he, he opens it up to Isaiah 61. Now, in the scroll itself, there was no numbers. There's no chapters and verses. So Jesus finds Isaiah 61 standing there in front of all the people in the synagogue, people that watched him grow up, people he grew up with, and he reads this to them. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That is, he's made me his Messiah. Why? To preach good, new, good tidings, rather, to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of, of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This particular text, like many other passages of Scripture, the Jews understood this to be referring to Messiah, what he would do when he came. But when Jesus was was finished reading the text, he 
he rolls the scroll back up, and then he looks at everyone in the synagogue, and he says this to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is telling everybody in his hometown, I am the Messiah. And when he says that this particular prophecy concerns me, he is saying inadvertently that every messianic prophecy in the Old Testament is talking about me. Do you know how profound that is? Later on in the book of Hebrews, he quotes Jesus from the Old Testament saying, behold, I have come in the volume of the scroll. It is written of me. And here, in just another way, he he says that. What I've just read to you, this messianic prophecy, it's fulfilled in your hearing. It's fulfilled in me. I am your Messiah. And then Jesus goes on and he tells the people in the synagogue, he predicts to them how they would react to this news. And instead of receiving it well, it says they were filled with wrath. They cast him out of the synagogue and they took him to the edge of the city and tried to throw him off of a cliff. And by some miracle, because, you know, the father had appointed the day of his death, the text says he walked through their midst and went his way. And it'll happen again later when the Pharisees try to stone him, okay? But it's, it's miraculous. And so leaving Nazareth, as our text says, he settled on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum, on the north end on the west side of the river. The name of the city... Uh, it means the city of Nahum. We say Capernaum, or I've heard Capernaum. If you go to Israel and you tell the taxi driver, take me to Capernaum or Capernaum, he will look at you strange. It's pronounced Kafar Naum. Kafar is village, Naum is Nahum the prophet. Okay? It can also be translated as the village of comfort because the name uh, Nahum means comfort in Hebrew. Uh, either way is, is, uh, is fine. City of comfort. The truth is, though, at that time, before Christ had come, there was no comfort for the city, uh, as Isaiah's prophecy predicts, as we'll look at here in a minute. But it was Capernaum, Capernaum, that Jesus made his headquarters for the next two and a half years. That's the place he came out of. That's the place that he generally came back to. A lot of time in Capernaum. The territory, as Matthew points out, uh, around the Galilee originally belonged to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's two of the sons of Jacob and uh, the, the, the descendants of Zebulun and Naphtali. They settled that area. And Matthew says that the father had sent Christ to this particular territory to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, which Matthew quotes. He says, the land of Zebulun of Naphtali and the land, or I'm sorry, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And he says this interesting statement. He says, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is Israeli territory. He says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, Isaiah, as we know, he often pronounced doom upon uh, various uh, parts of Israel. And one of the parts that he pronounced doom on was this particular area. But then also he then looks forward to something redemptive in that. If you read Isaiah, he goes gloom and doom, and then he goes gospel and redemption, essentially. Gloom and doom, gospel and redemption. He always uh, gives hope at the end of his, his prophecies. At the time that Isaiah gave this prophecy, the region of Galilee was ruled by the Assyrians. Okay? 
Uh, and, and because of that, the Gentiles, they moved Gentiles in uh, in 732 AD. And what had happened, the reason they were judged is because for, for about 300 years, God had tolerated the idolatry of the northern kingdom. But God can only tolerate idolatry and wickedness for so long. Uh, as Genesis chapter 15 talks about, he says that, you know, he had promised the land to Abraham. This is going way back. And he said, I, basically, he says, I can't give it to you yet, but I will. But currently, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're not at a place yet where I can justly just wipe them out. Give it 430 years, and they'll be there. And so with his own people, God had said, look, if you, if you go after other gods, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to let foreign nations conquer you. They'll deport you. They'll punish you. They'll discipline you for what you've done. So that's what's, that was ha- what was happening in 732 AD. The people were oppressed that were left behind. They were in gloom and darkness. We know they, they, they experienced some re- reprieve later on because uh, uh, Cyrus came to the throne over the, the Babylonian Empire. And he is the first emperor in world history to really liberate peoples and give them religious liberty. You'll, you'll find a decree from him actually at the UN. Crazy, huh? And so the Jews were allowed to go back into Israel. They were free to govern themselves. They were free to worship the way they wanted to. So Israel had some reprieve. But then a couple hundred years later, we know that then the Romans came in and they put Israel back under an iron fist and they oppressed them. They taxed them. And so they had a a glimmer of hope for a while, but then darkness set in once again. And it was actually worse and it was ongoing. But Jesus, not Jesus, but the Lord, the Father promised. He says, I'm going to send light to that dark place, to those oppressed people. So Jesus began to preach the gospel. He began to heal their sick and hope was born and people were emerging from the darkness. But this time the hope wasn't temporary. You guys from this, this carpenter from Nazareth, I mean, think about that, from Nowheresville, he started preaching the message of hope and salvation. And that went from from Capernaum to all of Judea and Samaria, and we know to the utter end of the world. And here we are today. Light dawned, and it's everywhere now. But there's an interesting transition in the text here that hope cannot actually be realized, of course, until Jesus becomes the object of hope. And for him to become the object of our hope, there's a prerequisite. It's in the next verse. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where have we heard this before? The phrase is identical to what John the Baptist was preaching just a chapter ago. It was more than a year ago in reality, but a chapter in our text, repentance. Why would they preach repentance? It's simple because repentance is required for salvation. It's required, it's prerequisite for entering the kingdom. This is how the gospel of the kingdom is actually communicated. That's how it's communicated. The message begins with the necessity of repentance. Without it, the kingdom, we would say, has been mentioned, but how to enter the kingdom has been omitted. And this is the very strange thing. Uh, ever since the, the, I don't know, the advent of the social gospel, I, you may not know that term, but it's a, it's a gospel that is preached that basically says, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There's hope that is presented without any demands. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Because, I mean, we love to be communicators of hope. Uh, we like to be communicators of good news, but we don't like to put any demands on people. I don't know, maybe you've heard the illustration that I gave uh, years ago. Uh, my daughter actually helped me make this illustration, but uh, she came to me one night and she said, Dad, what's for dinner? And I said, chili dogs. And she goes, yes. And she said, Dad, can I have mine without the chili? Because, see, chili is, that's what packs the punch, doesn't it? That's what makes the hot dog tolerable, right? It's what makes chili dogs good news, really. You see, everybody likes Jesus, and they like the things about him, the things that he's done. They love the sound of the good news, the gospel, but as soon as he makes demands, as soon as he says repent, people withdraw. I like all the benefits, but I do not want you to tell me what to do. You guys, if we preach a gospel like that, we really have not preached the gospel. We've told people about the good news, but we haven't told them how to obtain it, how to acquire the good news. You understand, people must repent. The unrepentant person, they are not and they cannot follow God. Somebody cannot continue in rebellion by his commitment to sin and follow God at the same time. Just like a person that is traveling east is not traveling west. It's really that simple. They must turn around. They must do so. And that's what happens in repentance. People must change their minds. That's literally what repent means. It doesn't mean to be sorry again. That's what it literally means, to re-penance, to be sorry again. That's English. That's not what the Greek means. It means to change your mind about the direction you're going in life, about sin itself. People must turn away from sin so they can actually turn to the living God and then be saved. Without it, they cannot be saved. The unrepentant are ruled by their desire for sin. They wander aimlessly in this life. They are in spiritual darkness. They have not come to the light. Now Jesus observed this about humanity. He said, the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that... I should heal them, Matthew 13, 15. Jesus is saying in the text, I cannot heal them. I can't save them until they repent. You see, it would be immoral. It would be immoral for Jesus to save someone that is committed to unrighteousness. They must turn to him. They have to turn away from sin. They have to face him and they have to face up. Only then can Jesus heal them, can he save them. But Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light. The scriptures say that the sinner enjoys his sin. They love to wallow in it. The psalmist says they drink in iniquity like water. And so as a remedy for this, Jesus came and he confronted the sinner. He called them to repentance. Now in the scriptures, the preaching of repentance never comes without teeth. It's always a real issue. It's always a real threat. In Revelation, Jesus said, repent or else. You know, John the Baptist had plenty to say about repentance and the reason for it. And the truth is, Jesus will actually use those same illustrations that John does, but he'll use 15 times more. Jesus talks about repentance and judgment more than any author of scripture, more than any preacher. John said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. That is, live a life that is consistent with repentance. He says, because the ax is laid to the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. He says, his winnowing fan, God, 
He says, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. That's the believer. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the unrepentant. And he said, because this is going to happen, he says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. So Jesus came giving a reason for people to repent. He provided them a reason. You see, the threat of danger is the only thing that will wake the sinner out of his sleep. It's the only thing that will make the swine reconsider the mire he wallows in. It helps the sinner, you know, question whether or not it's worth continuing in the passing pleasures of sin. What it does is it it brings to bear the righteousness of God on the conscience of man. It helps him wake up. It helps him think. But people say, oh, Pastor Ben, but preaching repentance and the judgment to come, that's hellfire preaching. So, don't you have precedent for it? I'm looking for an answer. Don't you have precedent for it in the scriptures? Now, you don't have precedent to do it and exclude the gospel of grace. You can't remove grace from it. You have to hold the salvation by grace out there to them. But you have to preach the truth as we see it in the scriptures. People say it's not very nice. I think that's a dumb thing to say. I think it is. It's actually a friendly warning. It's the most loving thing you can do. You know, not warning people of danger, that's the unloving thing to do. Look, if you know somebody is in danger and they're unaware of it and you say nothing, that's not simply rude, it's immoral. You have a moral obligation to tell people that they're in danger, especially when they don't know. Isn't that true? How many guys would just let one of your children ignorantly fall into a fire? How about your enemy? I don't care who it is, it would be immoral. We have to warn people. I told last service, you know, it's not funny like when you let your friend touch an electric fence without warning him. That's funny, okay? (laughs) They've done it to me, I've done it to them, okay? It's funny. But there's nothing funny about letting people slip into eternal judgment without giving them a warning, without offering them an alternative, without, without pointing them to safety. You see, no one escapes or comes back from this. It's all settled and done when someone is gone. So my encouragement is be like Jesus. We used to say, what would Jesus do? Do you know what he would do? He would preach repentance because he knows it's the only way that people can be saved. John preached that way. The apostles preached that way. So be loving and preach repentance before it's too late, before they're gone and they never come back. And do it with urgency. You know, Jesus brought the message with urgency. He said that the kingdom was at hand. You know, that, that, that figure of speech, at hand, it's, it's, it means that the reality of it is imminent. It could happen at any moment. It, it means that it's upon you. In other words, before it passes you by, or you pass unexpectedly, Jesus says, repent and don't tarry. Because there's two deadlines. The one that most people face is their death. It's a deadline. And grace is withdrawn at that moment. And so the scriptures say, repent. But then if the kingdom dawns upon you, that's the second one. At the moment that the kingdom dawns upon humanity, grace is withdrawn. And then the judgment follows. You guys, everybody must repent beforehand. It is urgent. And so if you haven't repented, today is the day to repent. And if you've been preaching what you call a gospel without a call to repentance, you need to repent and you need to start preaching repentance. Because if you preach a gospel without repentance, the best you will do is you will make false converts. And then they will come to church and they'll think everything's okay. 
while they continue in a lifestyle of sin. I think that's just as immoral, by the way, because they have not been warned of the danger, so they have not repented. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not repented, I I don't think we could be more clear. Acts chapter 17 says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world according to what is right. You need to make a decision now. Now, preceding the final judgment, the scriptures tell us that Christ came, that the Father took all of the collective sins of humanity and imputed them upon Christ. And then he went to the cross and he was punished for every sin we've ever committed. He's providing that for you, but you must receive it by faith. You must repent and you must embrace Christ by faith. And when you do, God promises that he will forgive you and he'll welcome you into his kingdom. Apart from that, you cannot be saved. You will be lost forever. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand up if you would. Next week, we'll look at the official calling of the disciples, and then we'll very quickly get into the Sermon on the Mount after that. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you. Lord, I thank you for Jesus' success. Thank you that because of him, the story continued. Because of him, we have hope. We have your promise, Lord. Lord, I know that simply because I'm not so foolish to think that everybody that comes to this building Sunday after Sunday is saved. I pray, Lord, that the truth of, about judgment, the truth about the gospel, Lord, that that would dawn upon them. They would see it for all it is. They would see themselves in light of it and that they're, they're in desperate need to repent so that they can be forgiven and saved. Lord, help them to come to terms with reality. And Lord, when they do that, I just pray that you would lavish your grace upon them. Lord, that they would just walk with you faithfully as you strengthen them. Lord, for the rest of us, you've called all of us to share the gospel with the lost. Lord, help us to do it rightly. Help us not to omit what is important from the gospel and give people a false hope. Help us to be faithful to preach repentance. Help us to be faithful and to warn people of judgment. It's coming and nothing can stop it. But by your grace, by the blood of Christ, we can avoid it. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Lord bless you guys. If you have questions about anything I've taught today, um, I think I'm approachable. Uh, Let's chat about it. So love you guys. It was good seeing you and hope to see you next week.